to Race Trader, a podcast where we trade ideas on race by way of discussing film. I'm your host, Boston. And I'm Jay. This episode, we will be discussing Network, directed by Sidney Lumet and written by Patty Chayefsky in 1976. Spoilers ahead, if you haven't seen Network, pause this episode and watch it. Next episode, we will be covering Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind by Michelle Gondry and Charlie Kaufman. You can drop us a line at bostonnj at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. Make sure you subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Again, we have guests, longtime friends of ours, Mark and Gary. Gary, why don't you start and uh, tell us a little about yourself? I uh, have known Boston for years. We went to school back in the day. We lived together for two years and didn't hate each other, so we're still friends. I am from Gary, Indiana, a little town along the lake shore just outside of Chicago there. I'm a lawyer. I work for the government, and I like movies. I took a class about movies once in college many years ago, and I'm excited to be part of this fine podcast that I listen to. That gives you more expertise than me, Gary, the fact that you even took a class on this. <laughs> I'm Mark. I've known Jay for at least 10 years. Yeah, 2006. Yeah, through the whole music scene, you know, like metal, hardcore, punk, all that kind of stuff. Currently, I'm attending school at uh, Rutgers, New Brunswick, so I've also taken a couple film classes. I think uh, the experts are actually the podcasters rather than the uh, the actual academics studying this stuff. I, mean, I had a chat with Jay the other day about it. But yeah, currently unemployed, fun employment, thanks pandemic. But uh, yeah, looking forward to this chat. Should be good. So, Jay, this was your idea. Why this movie? Well, outside of being one of my favorite movies of all time, I thought that outside of the podcast, you and I have been having a pretty vigorous ongoing debate uh, that's taken on many forms that kind of revolve around the Trump vote, the election, and the circumstances that have enabled this bizarre event to take the course it did. And for this coming out days prior to the inauguration, I thought the movie Network uh, would be particularly good revolving around this discussion of ours. It's definitely not a black movie in any way, except the black part of this movie, albeit like one twentieth, if that, of the film, adds to the nuanced perspective this movie already takes. And, uh, you know, Mark's alongside being a film advocate and coming from the same punk scene as myself, also is a very big part in the international Marxist tendency, the IMT. He's been doing a lot of organizing since I've been friends with him. I, I remember attending anti-war protests as early as 2007 with the dude. So uh, I am excited to have Mark on for that reason. So Gary, was this your first time seeing the film and give us your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. This was, uh, it's funny, I'd heard of Network I heard people talk about it. I had no idea what it was about. I didn't realize it was any sort of satire or anything else. I thought it was a straight drama before sitting down to watch it. So I went into it with completely sort of uh, an open mind. And what did I think of it? It's interesting, obviously, looking back on it from the year 2020, we can clearly see that they correctly called a lot of the things that were going to happen where the news goes from being a lost leader to a profit center. And with that comes the desire for entertainment over substance. And they put aside sort of the staid, uh, neutral 
you know, referee style news broadcasts and they made it into, you know, basically a, a freak show at times. I mean, that was, they definitely were very much uh, predictive of that. And I wonder, was this the, uh, the author sort of just having the vision or was this actually a trend that someone could have seen heading that way? So, but uh, it was definitely, it was interesting looking at it from this vantage point. Yeah, I was watching the, um, I have the double disc DVD special edition and there's like this like six part mini doc about it. And in that they said, um, what sparked the idea for network was that uh, a couple months before Patty Chayefsky started writing the movie, a major worldwide corporation was going to take over ABC. And uh, prior to this, you know, news was always expected to lose money and editorial was was never really considered until profit started becoming the primary motive and which you know sensationalism entertainment and the like but i think even later in like the mid 80s reagan signed some legislation that really gave even more momentum to a rock rolling down a hill so i'm curious to ask the marxist mark what you thought about the film oh man i i love this one actually i don't i can't remember uh jay did i introduce you to this or i can't even remember if that's we may out. have even watched it together for the first time, because I remember we were both pretty gagged about it. Yeah, I think uh, I think actually the first time I heard about it, of all places, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that old documentary. That's kind of like old news now, but uh, there was that Zeitgeist documentary that was floating around the internet, like kind of like 9/11 truther kind of stuff. And they, I think there was a clip from uh, this movie, the Howard Beale. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I think might have been a, a component part of that. And I was like, what the hell movie is that? That's awesome. That's and, exactly uh, what it was. And we watched that movie. Yeah, I remember like you and I like breaking that movie apart together. Yep. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> uh, Gary was saying about the, you know, it being a, a satire, not expecting it to be a satire. I thought it was funny. I saw some interviews with Patty Chayefsky and uh, Sidney Lumet. And they said it's not a satire. All this stuff actually happens, except for uh, all this stuff happens today, except for the guy being shot on air, uh, which is kind of crazy because I think it's one of those things that's just more and more relevant as uh, as time goes by, as uh, you know, news has become more and more entertainment rather than any kind of uh, you know just you know kind of neutral idea of uh, just presenting information. Of course, that never is the case, but uh, you know, a little more overt in uh, the way they actually present it. When I first saw the film, I couldn't escape the fact that Howard Beale was Bill O'Reilly. He was the angry Sean Hannity, you know, like this guy that's really angry. And some of the stuff he says may be true, but it's obfuscated by the performance that's put on. And all this stuff is just some kind of weird, angry performance art that has kernels of truth, but really gets no place other than to make people upset. And you, you begin to see the first kernels, I think, of if it, if it bleeds, it leads with Diana. We want only terrible things on the news and to see bad things happen to people and people to be really angry. I didn't think of it as a satire at all because I'm seeing this in 2020 where this is just what happens in the news. You know, it's not funny because it's just mimicking something that we all think is our darker part of the major issues with the major network news nowadays. And now Howard Beale would be 24-7. There'd be some version of him on all day long. 
how would Bill be selling supplements and stuff now? You know, like he'd, he'd have sponsor codes at the end of his podcast. That'd be the difference, you know. And, like, and at the end, of, and don't forget, kids, while you're out here and you're mad as hell, you got to keep your energy up. Get the, you know, the Nutramax, you know, whatever. Like, you know, like get all the vitamins and nutrients you need for like fighting off the Illuminati. You know, get fifteen percent off with my code. <laughs> yeah like what's the name of the crazy guy who was who was denying the the, the shooting alex jones alex jones oh, yeah. how would it feel as alex jones exactly you're totally right but it's also interesting because like i don't know when i first saw this movie it was probably around 2007 i think maybe and they did a very good job still though of making the howard beale moments relatable and those kernel of truths were so well structured that it enables you to be taken by it as well which may, i think made the point even that much more effective in tracking the more uh, sensationalized television, I mean, this movie came out in 76, so this is in the aftermath of Vietnam and what the reporting of that war did to America at the time. Yes and no, but you have the Gulf of Tonkin in the 60s, and then you have this litany of lies about Vietnam, but good reporting was already being done. The truth, at least at that point, for the most part, was being told. You have... The Pentagon Papers, you have the Watergate that actually had just happened because Ford is president. All of that is through great reporting and great newscasting. What they're foreshadowing is something that's darker where you stop doing that and you start focusing on other things. Well, except for the fact that there was plenty of stuff being hidden. There's plenty of perspectives that w would never have seen the light of day. In the movie itself, the sensationalism being proposed also gave communists and all of these perspectives that would never have been given the light of day an opportunity, which they were blinded and corrupted by in the film. And also, you know, what? And I think another interesting thing you have to put into context is that those things were not as wild to us or to the viewers in 1976, you know, you have to like set the scene, you're sitting there smoking your cigarette in the movie theater watching this movie. At that point, the Soviet Union was still alive and well, you know, like there was like, like the threat of international communism was like a real threat because there was no guarantee that one side was going to win this thing or other. So like, that's also like, an, I think that sort of makes that whole sort of side plot even spicier because... How do we know who's going to win in 1976? You know, it was like, at that point, the United States was looking pretty rough. You know, we just uh, had a president go down in flames. You know, we were like just had to pull out of Vietnam, sort of like tail tucked. You know, so like, it was like communism was like looking like it had a fair shot at that point. When I was watching it this time around, the thing I was thinking about is like viewers at the time when they they're watching this movie, they're referencing things that had just happened, like just a few months ago, like the Patty Hearst kidnapping. And then bank robbery, as you're saying, Watergate, all that stuff. It almost feels like almost documentary style. Thinking about it again this time around, you, you know, putting myself in the shoes of someone in 1976, like, oh, this actually happened. And, you know, kind of like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is presented as something that happened and seems somewhat plausible. And also, if you connect it to his other movies like uh, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, uh, Sidney Lumet's movies, those are also basically based on true stories, true events. So I'm sure plenty of viewers saw this and were like, oh, I, I never heard about this. When did this happen, you know? Yeah, it's kind of easy to fall into the habit of thinking the ideas we're talking about now haven't been talked about before. But although things are very different now, and rather than TV, we're dealing with the complexity of the Internet and social media and all of those ramifications and data mining and such, you could see the cycles at work. The time we're speaking to, 
we're in a strangely similar uh, circumstance right now in that way. Although, it's sort of interesting that it was mentioned in passing, you know, where he was doing his like, mad as hell speech about homicides and stuff. The crime rates that were going on in that period of time would blow our brains away. Like, we wouldn't even be able to understand, like, the murder rates that were happening then. Because I think a lot of, like, you know, most of us are in here and, like, somewhere in the 40-ish range or late 30s. So, like, those of us in the 40-ish range remember, like, sort of the murder rates of the 90s. But if you go back, they were even worse in the 70s and 80s a lot of places. So it's, like, the amount of crime that those people were dealing with, like, that whole... It's like they would have had more reason to be angsty and upset, arguably, in a lot of ways, because they were dealing with the economic collapse and stuff that we're dealing with now, but they also were dealing with a murder rate that had not been seen before or since. Like, that like that was like a 30-year stretch where no one could even explain. Like, you know, even now social scientists can't explain why so many people were getting murdered. Times Square, during this time, was not Disney. It was all pornography. Because I remember New York City as a kid in the 80s and you know a good depiction of new york city as funny as it is is the first ninja turtles movie where you couldn't go any place you get robbed we live in a time that's far more civil there should be far less angst i don't think of howard beale in any way even in his first spiel as heroic i feel like he was just unnecessarily fanning the flames of anger and that's kind of what people do now all the time like he said some things that were true, but he was a corporate whore like everybody else who's been playing his role ever since. He becomes what Oliver Stone was saying about Gordon Gecko, yeah, and how yeah. Oliver Stone had said that he didn't really make him to be out to be an anti-hero. He was supposed to be making him corrupt and people have now made him heroic in some form on Wall Street. I think that's who Howard Beale is. I think he set the stage in a lot of ways if he is the precursor, it wasn't because he was telling the truth, but he was a personification of anger in the newsroom. But he's also tapping into the anger of a system failing to meet the needs of like a large portion of people. And so he's tapping into something very real. He's just doing it for ratings. And and like I don't even think Howard Beale himself had that intent necessarily. I just think he was going through a manic episode and he was surrounded by sycophants looking at their shares. When we were watching this movie, like I mentioned, it's like Kanye West now. Like he's just given a mic because it's clickbait. Yeah. And also it was so wild that like the man literally falls out and you're like, we better take him to my house. And he's like, your house? That doesn't seem like they, <laughs> they have the facilities. Like, I don't know. Like, like if my friend had fallen out, like, I wouldn't be like, you know what? I'm going to take uh, Boston back to my house and let him sleep up. <laughs> like, you know, maybe we should swing by the hospital. Like, <laughs> I thought that was funny, too. Like, oh, he just fainted. It's like, wait, you sure he didn't have a heart attack? Like, what's going on here? Well, then, ironically yeah. enough, in real life, Peter Finch, the actor, died of a heart attack and uh, was the first person to win an Academy Award posthumously. Yeah, that's wild. It's, and also, to, to go back to the context thing, we're talking 1976, right, where basically all of these people smoked like trains. So, like, the, the life expectancy for a man, like, they were getting pretty close to it. And with the smoking and the drinking, if you see a guy who was born in like 19, they sort of um, allude to the fact the guy was born in like 1920, like in the 20s at some point, right? You see a guy in his 50s there fall out. You wouldn't think that was funny. You'd be like, that might be it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When I think about the principal character and all the structures that were built around him to support his narrative, it's hard to escape our current situation in Donald Trump. 
And I know we're at the end of his presidency, but imagine, because this is 76, and I think this is the year that Jimmy Carter wins the presidency, but somebody would have put Howard Beale for president in 76. Like, it would have been the same anger, angst, you know, one of the things that they did that wasn't real, I guess, in the way that it happened with Trump, is that Howard Beals is very much a multicultural anger and angst, at least when they're saying, we're mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. There were Asians outside saying it, black people outside saying it. But with Trump, most of that anger and angst has been captured mostly by white Americans. I, I think that's the only difference, but I don't really feel like Howard Beal was solutions oriented and that made him a precursor to Trump and a lot of the the sycophants that would happen. You need this whole structure set up so you can say all these things and all these people protect you. Most of the people protecting you aren't even listening to what you're saying, right? They're just gaining more power and they're just gaining more money and they're just feeding off of you, making other people paranoid. I think that leads well into something that made me uh, like sort of actually, it made me laugh a little bit at the movie in that it was very clear that the Diana character, you know, the character played by Faye Dunaway, was supposed to be an avatar for the network house. She was just like, I'll do anything for a 60 share. You know, give me, just give me 24 points. I don't care what it is. And what made me laugh is when the old executive called her out for being an avatar for the network. And I was like, you didn't have to say that. It was very clear. That <laughs> felt a little heavy-handed. It was like, I thought they'd already made that clear. But anyway, but like, but you know, you're right. Like the fact that I thought that was the best part of it, like right up until he said it, is the fact that they like that she was just explicitly saying, Look, man, whatever it takes to get people to tune in and watch this network so that I can make this money is all I'm interested in. So, you know what, if you gotta put the Mao Zedong hour on, if you gotta put the crazy man and the psychic on, you know, obviously it's easy for me with the benefit of hindsight, but it's so interesting to see that the author and the director of this movie was able to come up with this with really visionary, like seeing this is where we're going. We're going to the point where they will put any garbage on television just as long as we keep people tuned in. So they saw that coming, but then they didn't quite have, a, and this is my little critique of it, they didn't quite have enough faith in the audience to just let it lay. That they had to come back in and be like, you know, have this guy as sort of like the, um, uh, the foil to come back in and explain. In case you didn't realize it, Diana is the network. <laughs> The movie's definitely heavy-handed in that way. I wonder, my my history with older film isn't really good at all, but I wonder if the audience has grown more sophisticated with time and like the amount that we now take in. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the like the movie starts out with all the narration and all, which I think I could be completely off on this, but yeah, I've always thought that movies are better, you know, it's better show, don't tell kind of approach. I think maybe part of that is just how uh, maybe dominant uh, Patty Chayefsky's script was or writing was that you know the you know Sidney Lumet you know even being a theater guy originally he and who would you know focus a lot on the acting still saw that he needed to get the phrases that uh, Patty Chayefsky presumably wrote in the script in there you know even in the narration and even in the way that some of the dialogue almost seems forced you know the way that they uh it almost seems like uh, some of the actors probably have like thesaurus right next to them like, like yeah. there's the scene with Robert Duvall. It's like, oh, and he's he's uh, unwaverable in his position. It's like, yes, I would say he was adamantine. Like, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it, it like, it, I mean, it's almost part of the comedy of it is that it's just so uh, 
every, every character is so well written and, and well spoken, almost in an unrealistic way. It felt Shakespearean to me. Yeah, and especially that scene with uh, Diana and Max at the you know the whole the whole thing about how she's madness and all that kind of stuff because she's a child of television. Yeah, it's like perfectly staged. Well, and Patty Chayefsky came from the theater because I feel like a lot of the heavy handedness also came with the fear that what they were doing may be too dark for a lot of audiences. Like Sidney Lumet framed the narration as a way that gave the viewer permission to laugh for them to see that this is a black comedy. Here's a question. Did you think it was funny? Like, I didn't find myself laughing. Like, I knew that there were parts that were supposed to be comedic. Like, when they brought in, like, the ecumenical liberation army was supposed to be funny in its name. And then, like, in the and the scene where they're all sitting around reviewing the contract, I knew it was supposed to be funny. It didn't make me laugh, but it did sort of make me smile. Like, I don't know. How did that, yeah. how did that hit other people? I didn't think it was funny as much. I watched it with Jay, and there was times that I was I would crack up, but only because how honest it was and how prophetic it was. We now live in the world of YouTube, 24-hour news, and social media where everybody's faking it. There was that episode of the Boondocks where they had a bunch of people fighting on the network, and then they would get off. What's the name of the crazy blonde lady that that wrote writes all those crazy right-wing books? Uh, Ann Coulter? Yeah, they had an episode of her when she was supposed to be on the boondocks with Al Sharpton, and they were fighting, and then they got off, they were kind of friends, and they were going out for drinks or whatever. Everybody's in character. You know, even though that was fiction, you got the sense that that's kind of real. Like, everybody's in character. Everybody's playing a role. Because there's no way that you can be a highly intelligent, Harvard-educated person like Tom Cotton, for instance, who's a senator from Arkansas, and really buy into QAnon and Donald Trump. It has to be a part that you're playing. Well, even like uh, Alex Jones in a custody battle for his kid had to admit that what he was doing was a character in order to gain custody. And he did. It's like legally documented. Tucker Carlson did the same thing, not for a custody battle, but he was being sued for defamation and one of his legal defenses offered by his lawyers was nobody would take this stuff seriously like like it's like clearly this is an entertainment program like no one thinks that i'm serious i think in the fox news job description i think people like tucker carlson are uh, are listed not as like news anchors or anything but as entertainers i remember hearing that somewhere which totally makes sense with uh i mean not only fox i'd say cnn and msnbc are equally guilty in different ways though well, one big thing, especially the Ecumenical Liberation Army, not the Symbionese uh, Liberation Army, which is a real one. <laughs> not to be mistaken. But uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, that whole dynamic is uh, is really interesting. You know, the whole basement scene with the great Ahmed Khan. He shoots his gun in the air. And he says, "Man, give her the fucking overhead claws." <laughs> it's just like he's become a businessman now. It's uh, it's really uh, like what an amazing uh, no, inversion. I- I get the impression that they were trying to say that he'd always been a businessman, though, because like, and then yeah. not only did he shoot his gun in the air, but then he goes right back into the paperwork and goes, "Now we're on paragraph five, small a," <laughs> you know? Yeah, in some in some ways, I and actually one big theme that I I like read into it is especially with that, the whole Howard Beale thing. How uh, you know, there's the one line where where they said uh, the American people want someone to articulate their age for them. And an ineffectual, neutered voice. In the same sense that, like, Donald Trump and his appeals to, oh, you know, the system is rigged, 2016. 
big appeal for him was the system is rigged, the banks are, uh, are rigged against the small guy, all that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff does speak to people. But of course, it's ineffectual because he has no intention of ever changing anything like that. You know, it's all just, you know, smoke and mirrors just to, you know, feel like connected to this candidate who fundamentally has no interest at all uh, in anybody. In the case of Donald Trump, I'd say in anybody but himself and his uh, his family. But in the case of other politicians, uh, you know, basically the stability of the system, the you know corporations that are donors to their campaigns and all that. All right. So that feels like that then takes us right into what the hell was going on with the whole Mr. Jensen, like, close the curtains, let me tell oh. you about the globalism <laughs> scene. I, I love that. To, I, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know enough about Paddy Chayefsky, but I think he was at some point associated with the Communist Party, and uh, which, you know, gives you, like, a, a bit of a hint of his politics. But, man, that, that scene is so good. You know, just talking about, you know, from the point of view of big business, they don't care about nations. They don't care about... Uh, you know, what's right or wrong, truth, justice, democracy, all that stuff. All they care about is is the, you know, what's he say, the one holistic holy of holies or whatever, which is the dollar. Right. Uh, and then later there's the whole thing with Howard Beale where he's talking about there is no America, there is no democracy. Uh, you know, the individual is finished. And uh, no, and that's him. Jensen red-pilled him. Like, after he talked yeah. to Jensen, he came out and he's like, let me break <laughs> it down for you. I like he, was like he was like, you know, like, the Matrix has not been filmed yet, but I've taking the red pill and i'm gonna tell you about <laughs> yeah. this let me ask you this question because this is where jay and i go back and forth how much of the responsibility of it is the audience or do you think the audience knows they're being fed nonsense i think it's like a pie chart or a venn diagram right there's certain people who do certain people who don't it's like um Take WWF, right? When we were kids, there was like the dumb kid who thought that it was real and they'd get mad when you said it was fake. But you still watched it and enjoyed it even though you knew it was fake. Like I knew that Hulk Hogan wasn't really like fighting for his life with the Ultimate Warrior, but I still tuned in every Saturday. So I would imagine that there's a lot of everything. There's a bunch of people who think it's real. There's some people who think it may be kind of real. And there's people who know it's fake but still like it. You know, or or then like, and then there's the people who know it's fake, maybe don't even like it, but are still in it for the social uh, benefits. Because if all your friends are watching it, you don't want to be left out, right? Let me ask you this question then: How does that play into the news, Fox News, Trump supporter? How aware do you think they are of the game that's being played on them? Do you think it's the same thing? You think it's like he's just the latest WE champion with the championship belt? And tomorrow would it be somebody else and they're all kind of just playing around? Or are they more or less unaware of the social ramifications that are happening because of their choice? I think it's going to be a mix. I think there are people who are – I guess if you look at it, right, there's like – you brought them up earlier. There's your Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio's of the world who – I guess my theory on Trump supporters is there's like three – there's like major categories, right? There's the, there's the grifters who are just getting what they can get out of it, or looters. I like to think of them as looters because I visualize them as like literally like, you know, like L.A. riot style, like running out of like Renner Center with a couch with a TV <laughs> on it. There's like those people who are just like breaking display cases and getting whatever they can get while they can. Then there's the crazies who are like, you know, like the QAnon true believers who are like, you know, who just think it's true. And then there's like your like your straight up like white nationalists who are like, look, I'm willing to put up with all the bullshit because in the end he does forward my like my white nationalist policies in a way that we can't get any like boring regular republican to do so i think those are your categories there's like the people who are like 
I'm just a political looter, man. Like, I'm just here to, like, snatch what I can get. And we're going to drill in the Arctic. We're going to, you know, whatever. Then there's the QAnon, like, bug-eyed crazies who actually think it's all true and that Trump loves them. And he's like, and then there's, you know, like, the people who are just making a practical decision. was like, yes, I am a white nationalist and I don't see anyone else who's willing to, you know, do what's necessary to protect this great country for the white man. Uh, all of those people definitely are portions of it. And there's also a really big group of small business owners who don't like the way the Democrats have dismissed them, see the small increase in money or the less taxes as a way forward for them in the short term, and would identify as not racist and due to maybe their lack of experience with the black community or things of that nature, just see racism as something that is not as big as purported, but I don't think they're outright white supremacists. I mean, obviously that term is changing these days, but in terms of how I think the majority of people outside of these like intense dialogues, you know, they're like, well, I'm not aligned with the KKK or the, these neo-Nazis or proud boys, but I think that, you know, Trump cares about me. Yeah. Following up with what Jay was saying, I think there's four categories, small business people who in the short term are just kind of you know, I, I think there's plenty of like, you know, people just fed all this crap that, oh, it's the Democratic uh, state governors and all that kind of that kind of stuff as if that is uh, it all boils down to shut down kind of policies and all that kind of stuff. Of course, that's like the heat of the moment kind of thing. But I think there's plenty of working class uh, white people and, and non-white people who uh, who find a certain appeal in Trump in the sense that he presented himself as an outsider, as someone who wasn't a politician. And uh, I think the Democrats haven't been earning themselves any friends among normal, you know, working class people in general. Uh, an interesting, like, statistical thing. Uh, I don't have anything right in front of me, but uh, the counties in 2008 that overwhelmingly supported Obama are the same counties that overwhelmingly supported Trump in 2016. And of course, some of that can be chalked up to, you know, people abstaining from the vote. But I think a good chunk of those same people, you know, the same people who are appealing to the hope and change. Yeah, we need something new, something fresh, something to change the same old status quo that we've been experiencing for decades. Obama's saying he's going to change something. That's great. So they cast a vote for him. But fundamentally, things didn't change in their life in any uh, kind of meaningful way. And uh, those same people came out to vote for this other guy who... Uh, you know, started to appeal to this idea that, oh, you know, he can't be bought because he's already rich. Uh, so he's going to be more independent. And he uh, he rejects the uh, he's going to drain the swamp. He rejects the politicians, all that kind of stuff. It's kind of a <clears throat> just the class anger, uh, essentially, uh, of course, with the contradiction that he absolutely doesn't represent working class people in any way, shape or form. But, you know, it's kind of a vote against the system. Then, of course, there's the people who vote on like issues like abortion, which is uh, I th I'm sure is a good chunk of the votes that uh, that Trump received. You know, people who are, you know basically just vote on that one question alone. They might hate Trump and kind of hold their nose, but they can't bring themselves to vote for someone who, in their mind, is you know someone that endorses death or whatever. Uh, you know, like a pro-lifer would kind of uh, present it as. I think that's a, also a huge chunk. Well, see, this is actually like. This, it, I think some of this goes back to sort of the premise of like people, you know, how when Howard Bill is actually sort of shitting on his audience, talking about how you people just sit there taking in everything and you believe anything we tell you and it's just all lies, is that so much of 
of what happens, and this is another interesting thing, is like, you know, the most popular news is not CNN, it's not Fox News, it's not MSNBC, obviously. It's actually the freaking ABC evening news still. More people get their news from just, you know, Channel 7 than anything else. And this summer, uh, thanks to the pandemic, I spent like two months with my in-laws watching the network news, which is something I had not done since I was a child. And if you watch the network news, you have no idea what's actually going on. Like you would think that there was a lot of both sides and you know political wrangling, and you wouldn't actually know who to blame for the problems. So it's actually it's it's funny that in 1976, obviously the big difference was that everyone literally watched the news. There's like four or five channels most people had access to, and everyone in America, like when they're talking about 60 million people, you can't get 60 million people to watch anything but the Super Bowl now. But that was like you could get 60 million people to watch freaking Howard Beale, who wasn't even that good back then. But with that said. The network news still has a, a huge ability to shape what happens in our country because how they tell the story makes a big difference. You know, like, and let me tell you, from watching network news this summer, you're like, you know, this Trump guy, he's not so bad. You know, he's not great, but, you, you know, he's not exactly the, the devil incarnate or whatever. Like, you would sort of forget or not realize whose fault all this bad stuff was. Like, the thing I kept saying is, like, it became, like, a personal mantra almost. It's like, if you look in your refrigerator and there's nothing in there but a light, you should be mad at the Republicans. But I don't, but you would never know that from watching the news. You'd be like, Congress having deadlock. It's like, no, Congress is not having deadlock. Like, basically, Mitch McConnell is telling you to, like, literally die. And Donald Trump is the laziest person probably to ever hold the office and doesn't even, like, doesn't even put forward a proposal, doesn't shake any trees, doesn't make any demands because he's just busy, like, you know, doing whatever he's doing instead of like leading the country. And you would never know that from watching the network news. So it's actually sort of funny that, you know, obviously now with the splintering of TV audiences, like you don't get a Howard Beale with 60 million, but you still get enough. And I think that hits into what you guys are very rightfully saying. It's like that fourth category of people who are sort of not necessarily, I would say like not that well informed. But I will say one last thing about, uh, I am both a it drives me crazy because like, I grew up in the Midwest in a church-attending Christian family, and my parents are so blue-collar that like my you know, like my father literally and my uncles and so they literally went to work with like our name, our last name written on their shirt. Like it could not be more blue-collar, could not be more Christian, could not be more Midwestern. And we all hate Trump and the Republicans. You know why? Because we're not racist. That's the big difference. It's like we're black. Like being black is like the Dakota ring for how you're able to like somehow. <laughs> overcome the temptations of like the angry white racist like party it's like no like it's not about the it's not about appealing to like the working class or the religious or whatever it's like in the end this is like my own personal thing which i think probably works well with the topic of this podcast is that the only difference between a black midwestern blue-collar worker when they go to the polls is they're actually voting on issues like who is going to help keep the united steel workers alive who's going to keep like my union wages at the hospital coming in that's what they're voting for like whereas like the person who works right next to him who votes for trump despite the fact that the republican party has literally tried to murder unions for their entire adult life it's like can go in there talking about this oh I, I care about the babies whereas look my mother she cares about the babies but she also cares that her union wages come through a lot more than she cares about your like somebody else's baby and that doesn't make her a bad person. That makes her somebody who realizes that, um, like, those are personal choices. You can make your personal choices at home. Like, look, if you don't want an abortion, don't get one. But if we get rid of unions, we're all suffering. Yeah, the Trump supporter and the Obama supporter were not the same people. And I think that's... 
they might live in the same county. But they're not the same people. It was just that Obama supporters stayed home and Trump supporters, by and large, came out highly charged by the message of race. You and I both lived in the Midwest for several years um, in the conservative state of Indiana. Indiana was conservatively racist for a pretty long time. Still is. Still is. <laughs> Still is. And it's not because Trump has been selling them a bale of goods. It's just because they're racist and that's kind of the way they like it. You know, like it's it's really no other reason for it other than that's just the way they like it. Like it's I don't think they're being tricked into anything. I don't think there's a subterfuge. But if you go to Martinsville, Indiana, probably one of the most racist places in Indiana, they like it. They like the way it is. And if you want to figure something out, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. If you Absolutely. want to figure out what why Indiana is racist and why they might be suffering economically, it's because that is the way they've wanted it, and that's the way they've wanted it for 100 years. But saying an entire state is racist is too reductive. And a vote for Trump supports this racist fan-waving that Trump has used to divide and conquer. But to say that every vote for Trump is a cognizant vote for racism is too simple and i think it prevents one from understanding why they're voting well you have to go back to the categories because in my opinion and like and from being a political hobbyist at this point which i'd never really like you know boston can tell you i was not particularly interested in politics but at this point in time like politics have become so interested in me that I've had to like educate myself to understand what in the hell is going on. Mm. But I'm saying, if you go back to what I was saying about the category, it's not that everyone who voted for him is like racist first. That's not like they're like leading, that's not sort of their leading thing, but everybody was willing to accept it. It's like, like if you go to, you know, if you go to an amusement park, maybe you don't go just for the roller coasters, but you're like, you're at least okay with being in the place with the roller coaster. Sure. I think that's also the dynamic in, in many ways that, you know, like CNN, MSNBC, a lot of their attacks on Trump are frankly just kind of dishonest, you know, in the sense that they'll they'll amplify like like things that other presidents got away with. No problem, uh, for example. But there was one interesting thing I, I, I like to say in the uh, president vice presidential debate. There's there's that one point where uh, where Pence, uh, Indiana, good old Indiana boy, he uh, he says one true thing basically completely dishonest of course but i think it's part of their whole game of both parties he you know he basically attacked kamala harris for her record uh you know as district attorney of uh san uh, San francisco right and uh Mm -hmm. attorney general of california her track record of uh of black men being in prison for minor offenses and of course not to even mention her uh her whole policy of you know which apparently was never acted on but the whole if your kid's late to school or doesn't show up to school, they, your parents go to jail kind of thing. And then, and of course, the ability to attack the crime bill from Trump, you know, dishonestly, uh, from his point of view, completely cynically. I think plenty of people see that and say, well, well, really, who's racist? You know, Trump does say a few things that are, are racist, but Joe Biden said the same thing. Uh, so I could see people actually kind of reacting to the accusations of Trump being a racist while recognizing that, you know, there's plenty, been plenty of racist presidents before him. And uh, really, is it all that fundamentally different from the guy who wrote the crime bill and uh, was against, you know, desegregated school busing in his youth? I think there's a big difference. 
Trump literally started his campaign riding down golden escalators saying Mexicans are rapists. I don't know if we've had, I mean, you'd have to go back to Woodrow Wilson at least to get a president that was that openly racist. I think that very clearly in Trump's presidency, either you were a racist or racist adjacent, like it just didn't bother you. And if they were having a racist meeting, you probably wouldn't take the podium, but maybe you'd stop by, have some coffee, see what was going on. I think that the lines of race in the Trump presidency were so clear that it would be hard for you to say there was an equivalent someplace else. Now, maybe if you're watching network news and you're just not in tune to what's actually happening, but the man did say that Mexicans were rapists. I mean, there's a reason why 90% of black people did not vote for him. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, like, this is one of those things where, like, I don't want to oversimplify it, but, you know, like, I've heard political scientists, like, who actually study this stuff say, like, there's this woman, I can't think of her name right now, she's written books about, like, black Republicans, and she talks about how, like, when black people first broke off from the Republican Party, and it's actually, it's way before you think, like, it was, like, in the 1930s, because the Democrats were putting forward the New Deal. And so, it, like, the crazy thing is, is because black people have been so marginalized and had to struggle so much, that black people have ended up being actual, you know, they're always talking about kitchen table issue voters. So what has happened is black people are the only large block of kitchen table issue voters. So they voted for the Democrats, despite the fact that the Democrats also encompassed the Dixiecrats and had the George Wallaces of the world. They were like, look, we don't like them. They're racist. But the New Deal, that's a good deal. The problem is that over the years, the Republicans, because of their, like, their whole, like, fake fiscal conservative stuff and the austerity they never offer a good deal and then they turn around and they say how come the blacks won't vote for us because like, you don't offer a good deal and you put up racist people so it's like like it's a double whammy it's like because that's the other thing like the thing you're saying about biden being racist it's like i would assume almost every other black person thinks the same way that i do of course biden's racist he's a seven-year-old white man like why wouldn't he <laughs> in a sense you look at like the people who watch tucker carlson for example which I think he's the most popular. He's like the Howard Beale. <laughs> he's the most today. popular cable show. Yeah. If you watch some of that stuff, he actually, you know, to make himself legitimate, he actually does sprinkle in truth. And I think plenty of people watch it and they say, yeah, that's correct. And then, of course, he spins it to something completely ridiculous, dishonest and cynical. But I think plenty of people, you know, watching that, you know, the way that all that stuff is presented, they'll say, oh, you know, the, the liberals, they say that Trump is racist. But then they'll pivot and they'll point out all the racist things that, you know, Democrats are guilty of. And that, in a sense, from the point of view of just, a you know, your average Joe kind of white working class voter who, you know, basically found themselves watching Fox News, unfortunately, and not really too critical, does not read the news, frankly. Unfortunately, that's one of the big things. I think watching the news is the worst fucking thing for your brain. But, um, but yeah, plenty of those people just say, yeah, not, you know, for, I, I'm not into racism. I'll, I'll vote for Trump. I mean, because what's the what's the difference? You know, from their point of view, they don't see the uh, they don't they basically aren't watching the same kind of TV, reading the same articles as uh, as people who otherwise would be voting Democratic uh, for the most part. And I think it's a very conscious thing. But why is it that you know? But why is it that the the old conservative I go to the the Church of God in Christ conservative black man doesn't vote for Trump eighty five to ninety percent of the time? He's like, here's the thing. He works at Jiffy Lube. They've got the same Fox News playing in the break room at Jiffy Lube for him. But he looks at it, and then he turns on the news, and he sees Donald Trump talking. He goes, oh, hell no. So what's the difference between, what's the difference between Jimmy and Frank? 
they were they both literally work at the same Jiffy Lube. You know, they got workstation two and three. Jimmy and Frank walk into the break room. They smoke a cigarette. They have a coffee, and then they go home. And Frank's got a Trump sticker on the back of his car, and Jimmy's like, "Oh hell no." I think um, it's because white people have the privilege of not being black and dealing with the pressures that black people go through. Black people have no choice, obviously, but to go through it because they're black. So like race will always be at the forefront for them. But a white person who, let's say, just has small interaction with the black community has a much easier time putting it aside, not because he actively hates black people, but because it doesn't affect him. And, 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 you know, just to make it clear, like where Boss and I have disagreed is not whether Trump has utilized racism effectively in his presidency. Of course he has. It'd be silly to say otherwise. But the argument's more about racism and addressing racism and shaming those people and calling them racist isn't really going to solve as much. Whereas in getting behind legislation and causes that actively help both communities, which most legislation that would help black communities are going to help poor white communities. The problem is it doesn't work because white people are more interested in white supremacy than they are in kitchen table issues. But I've heard pollsters say that actually what could work is you have to deliver, and this should be very interesting to Mark as like a, as a Marxist, is what you have to do is you have to deliver a message where you explain to the white people that the rich people are using racism as a Trojan horse to slide all of their rich people stuff past you and you're getting played. But you have to package it that way because otherwise if you just go in the, like if you just go straight to the economic message, that still doesn't work because they're like, yeah, but what about the stuff for the white people? Whereas you have to explain to them, no, no, rich white man is tricking poor white men by using the racism thing because they don't care about you. So it's like you have to package it that way. And you know, and it's sort of an example of how that, that dumb what's in it for me attitude works. You can go to like some of the Eidos stuff, you know, like the, the people who are like, yeah, Obama did stuff, but what did you do specifically for black people? <laughs> like, like, it's like, like there was like a special like line for like, a, like when you went to go get Obamacare or Medicaid expansion, like they didn't let you get in it if you were black. Like, but there is that, there's a strong streak that people, especially, I mean, to be frank, dumb people really want you to explain exactly what's in it for them. As a Marxist, as a member of the international Marxist tendency, one of our big things is we think the biggest issue with American politics or the next that, you know, how to elevate things positively for America's uh, working people is basically the, the establishment of a new political party that represents working class people presenting a program, a socialist program that actually could address the needs of working class people. And I think part of the dishonesty on the part of the Republicans and Democrats of course, they basically, their entire rule, from my point of view, they just lean on different layers of the uh, of the ruling class. You know, so like Trump is the energy sector, although Biden is also a different part of the energy sector, you know, with natural gas and all that. Uh, but then, of course, I'd say the Democrats have more of the backing of like the more farsighted layers of the, of the ruling class, like finance, you know, Wall Street, people who kind of have a look at the entire economy from above. But, you know, in the absence of an actual political party, actually, you know, calling out directly working class issues, <clears throat> you basically have this cynical game of the Democrats in many ways present themselves as being the friend of the working man sometimes. Uh, but now the Republicans are almost attempting to elbow into that kind of territory. But uh, essentially, the program of the Democrats is a redivision of scarcity 
Whereas a working class socialist approach would be to abolish scarcity, you know, instead of uh, look at it as uh, what is a so-and-so candidate going to do for my segment of the working class? The real question that a, a working class political party could put forward is, you know, we're not fighting for a redivision of, uh, of a system that basically creates this artificial scarcity. We're, we're fighting for the abolition of this system that can, uh, that can raise everyone up. And of course, that's not without a struggle to fight against racism at the very base level of that party. But I think it, it's a lot of it is messaging that uh, it just isn't there. There is no mass voice basically giving voice to working class independent uh, issues. It's all kind of put into this big mix for big business, shaken up, put out there. And your, and your point about, you know, it's essentially racism has always been promoted by the rich to divide the working class. Going, it works. You know, yeah, it works don't... great. I mean, if you think about it, like how else can you get a bunch of people to go? They sit around and watch Tucker Carlson, who was a who was the heir to the Carlson Fish family, like the fish stick people. They watch a guy who has been rich his entire life and will die rich. Tell them to get mad because people don't support another guy who was born rich and is going to die rich as he's like ripping off the country. And they sit around watching. So think about it. You are some guy who goes to work and you only get paid when you show your ass up and work every day. You're not in the union because you live in Tennessee and the governor would like have a fit if they tried to unionize, even if like the people are happy to do so. And why are you getting punished and beat up? Because they've convinced you that this is the white man's party. And if you want to take care of white people, you have to get in it. Now, that's the biggest problem with organizing in America is that we have this long built in, I mean, hundreds of years, basically as old as the country, like problem with like systemic and endemic racism. And they're cheating themselves. You know, I know Boston read the book. I only listened to the guy do some interviews, but there's a book called Dying of Whiteness where they talk about how in states that passed a couple of different policies, which are mostly, you know, uh, they passed them on the back of white support. Uh, they literally are killing more people, like more white people, like because they're like high, like heavily white states, like Missouri and Kentucky. You know, like the, Kentucky was like a good uh, example. Like Kentucky passed expanded Medicaid, whereas Missouri didn't. And you can look and see the flat-out number of dead people is the difference. I don't know if you have the numbers like sort of at the tip of your tongue, Boston. You know what I'm talking about, right? No, I know, you know exactly what you're talking about, and I don't have the numbers at the tip of my tongue, but the number of white people who chose in essence to die over taking Obamacare is disturbing. And the that let me know how endemic racism is. And it goes back like to the Civil War because I have like a car. And if the government took my car or my money, would I go to war? Like, like would I go to war? Even if it was, because there were people who went to war and even they didn't even own any slaves. It was just a whole concept of race for them. Like, yeah. and they were willing to die. And that's crazy to me. Like, that's that's a psychosis that I just, that is so endemic in our it's so in, so intertwined in the DNA of the country that if you're going to organize, like you have to address that first. And just to say it's a Trojan horse, the you're being ripped off by an, another subset of white people. I think that Americans are so attached to their whiteness that that'd be a difficult concept for them to give up. 
I think what you have to do is you also have to sell them on the fact that, and here's the thing, no one wants to do this, but like, you know, as a black person in America where I'm like, I feel like it maybe would take a black person to just flat out tell the truth and go, look, look at California, where white people are now only a plurality of the population. You're still in charge of everything. The senator is white, the governor is white. It's just like, I mean, it's like, it's okay. Like, like even if you're only a plurality, if there's 40 something percent of you, you're still going to be in charge of everything. You're still going to have the money. You still got all the, like, the advantages. Take it down. Like, but no one, like, someone needs to talk to white people, let them know. It's like, even, because you know, like, they, there's that, that people on both sides have talked up this whole, oh, you know, the demographics are changing. White people aren't going to be the majority. Someone, like, someone who of good intent needs to explain to them, it's like, look, white people, I know everybody in America is bad at math, including me. That's why I'm a lawyer. I'm not like an engineer. <laughs> but you need to understand, not the majority is not the same thing as being a minority. It's like, it's like we need to like we need to get the term plurality trending. It's like you're still in charge. Well, it's going back. All right, Civil War happens, and there there was a shift in racism actually. So like before, from what I understand, there was more of like a paternalistic kind of point of view from the uh, you know the slave owners. It was like, oh well, I I do what's best for my slaves. That whole kind of uh, fucked up outlook. But afterwards, then the question was, oh crap they're potential competitors uh black people are potential competitors because there was you know suddenly the ability of in many cases the majority of the population to uh to actually own their own land and work their own land and sell crops which directly affected the uh the slave owners and unfortunately they didn't actually carry out what they should have uh with a reconstruction of actually redividing all of the uh the slave owners plantations amongst the population uh, so you ended up with this situation where the the old landowners were still the old landowner landowners, and there was the whole sharecropping system. But there was a very conscious turn and an effort to basically tell poor white people that you know that the whole idea, like, oh well, at least they're below you, uh, and they're they're trying to they're going to put you out of business if uh, if they're not kept down was kind of the whole outlook. And it's definitely there's like documentation of how deliberately that kind of uh, stoking racial division was. And uh, unfortunately, plenty of white people ate it up, you know, felt felt that there was a genuine fear. And uh, and I think that's kind of uh, what I was saying with a working class political party could appeal to, you know, poor white people who were, you know, kind of sucked into that crap, appeal to them and say, that's not the problem. The problem is the, the you know, the rich keeping people apart. And but we need a program to, to raise it, everyone. Did you have to make sure they know about Mr. Jensen? You know, to take it back to the movie, is yeah. enough of, like, if they don't understand that Mr. Jensen is, like, a real person who sees <laughs> them as, you know, essentially, like, wage slaves and customers and nothing more, if they don't understand that there's a lot of Jensens out there who don't love America, who don't love, you know, Britain, who don't love anybody except for who could help them to get rich, if you can't get them to understand that, they're still going to fall back to, like, their sort of you know, tribalism and their concerns. Because you know what the problem is? If you put forth this good working class party and they start talking about that, you know who's going to join that working class party? Black people. Hispanics. Yeah. And, then the, and what's going to happen is if you go, if you're, a, you know, sort of a, a racist, curious white person, you know, like you don't think of yourself as racist, you just don't want your daughter to bring one of them home. That kind of racist, right? <laughs> when you look over and, you know, and, you know, your international workers party looks like a, a salsa club that's going to turn some people off <laughs> but, I, but I, I it definitely is going to turn people off but i don't think it's going to turn as many away as you think especially if their voices are being heard i mean the thing is is like it's kind of like with um 
the George Floyd murder would also have happened if Hillary won. And I think a difference if Hillary won is you probably wouldn't have as much counter-protesting as there was in how much that uh, Trump makes them feel like there's something relevant. But you still would have either party, as it was this time, not having any legitimate response to the atrocity and doing everything they can to really just obfuscate the issue toward an individual or the uh, moralistic personal issue and keeping it out of anything potentially legislative or communal or local in terms of policy. Or Even in the wake of all of that, Breonna Taylor's murderer was, was let off. And it's like neither party addresses these issues that even in the midst of like the biggest portion of the pandemic, when the virus was potent, people came to the streets because this issue was too big. I think I'm going to disagree with the premise that both parties, I do think both parties... Biden criticized the protesters. He was not pro-protesters. Yes. However, I don't like when people equivocate. The Republicans are demonstrably undemocratic, largely a sinkhole for racism and Q and conspiracy theories. And you do have legitimate voices on the left who are part of the Democratic Party. I think Ayanna Presley, AOC, Bernie Sanders, I think there are legitimate voices. And they were all prevented. Like Bernie Sanders arguably would have won in two. I don't think he would have won personally in 2020, but he, but he would have won in 16. And the Huffington Post and the Democratic Party and like a lot of liberal media suppressed that dude's momentum actively. Yes, but he's a part of the party. You Which know, is like, an issue, and that's know, his but, failure. But and they're moving forward a progressive agenda very slowly. I, I'll tell you what would have happened if Hillary had won. We might not have had the counter-protest, or things might have been a little different, but Derek Chauvin would have been arrested by the Justice Department. I can almost guarantee that. I think that they would have sent the Justice Department down there, they would have investigated, and Derek Chauvin would have probably been indicted in federal court before he would have been indicted in state court. One thing that has actually been good about the Trump presidency, and I will give some credit, is... It is, first of all, it's made every one of us turn into a freaking civic student where we're out there like, can you do that? Who's in charge of that? So it's really like expanded our interest in like how things actually work. And the other thing is made clear to me, which I would not have predicted, is that the president as a tone setter is really powerful. I had no idea how many people in this country really do sort of move sort of in line with what the president says. The president says, it's just the flu. People go, it's just the flu. The president says, ah, you know, that maybe this guy had it coming. Maybe he had it coming. Not, but I will say this. He didn't do that in the Floyd thing. That's how bad, by the way, can we just say George Floyd's killing was so bad that even Trump was like, yeah, that looks pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, think about how messed up you have to be as a white cop to have, George, to have Donald Trump be like, damn, bro, I think you did that. Whew. But as far as the tone of, of dealing with the riots, and stuff, I think that we've seen that would have been a big difference. There would not have been, like, they literally brought in federal prison guards to crack skulls in D.C. Like, Hillary Clinton would not have done that. Like, I agree would, with that. There would not have been, and Hillary Clinton never would have said such things as when the looting starts, the shooting starts, you know, because he quickly, you know, Trump quickly went from, okay, man, that was pretty messed up, to, to jumping over to, now we're going to talk about, like, policing and like property rights and how the cops have to Law say this and order. in the end the only sort of organized labor which you know i don't even know if you can call them organized labor because they don't really 
behave like any other union, but the only sort of organized labor that uh, the Republican Party likes, and they exempt from all of their like union bashing, is the police and fire union. You know, so it was it was pretty wild to see how quickly they got off the topic and got onto like protection of property instead of you know protection of human rights, which also goes against you know supposedly the like conservative beliefs, right? If you're a libertarian, you should have been mad as hell. I, you know, usually like, yeah. Rand Paul should have been the first man on the streets. You mean to tell me an actor <laughs> of the state killed a man on on TV? Rand Paul should have been like marching next to to AOC and, and yeah. yeah, it yeah. shows how cynical uh, those libertarian types are. Oh yeah, like libertarian. Actually, I will say this: police violence has been a good, has really been a good way to find out how serious the libertarians are about their like, air cool principles. You know, obviously, racism is embedded in um, American society more than any other. It's unique and it needs to be explored as such. But I think to declare that Trump is just racism and nothing more, it takes away like the nihilism and uh, dissatisfaction that he also is tapping into as well. One of the questions, Gary, that you had presented to me, or this theory that you've been kicking around for some years, is that America might be a utopia if there were no black people in it. Like, if there were no black people to wedge, we would look more or less like a Scandinavian country. I, yeah, that's that's one of my theories is because if you think about it, you can come in and talk nuts and bolts when we're only talking about, you know, cousins, essentially. Because if you think about it, right, why do they talk about, oh, you know, if you go to Norway, the prisons are really built around rehabilitation? Because... When you send a guy named, when you send Rolf to prison, you go, well, Rolf is going to get out. You know, I would like Rolf to be in a better situation than when he goes in because, you know, that's my cousin. Whereas, like, in America, you can at least have this imagination that the person that you're punishing or, like, or hurting is not someone that you ever have to deal with, you know, which is obviously, like, super short-sighted. Oh, but this comes back to another thing I wanted to talk about with the movie. Something that really struck me is I appreciated that the movie had a realistic sampling of people from New York, like, the fact that, like, Security guards were like mostly black guys, like like you know like like the elevator operators. And it was like that. And it's actually it's funny because it brings me to another film related thing, which is I didn't understand why people were so mad about Friends and like when I was a kid because I was like why are people so mad that there's no black people in Friends because like I'd never been in New York at that point. But I actually have to well, having lived in you know New York for many years, I realized it's like of course because you can't avoid them. Like there's a brown skinned guy or a black guy or an Asian guy everywhere. So the idea that you would film a TV show set in New York and not have anybody but white people is really crazy. Yeah, going back to what Gary was saying about that whole concept of like, you know, if there weren't black people in the United States, it would look like Scandinavia or something, you know, with like universal health care, all that kind of stuff. I, I think there actually is a certain element of truth to that in the sense that I'd say the the big difference between Scandinavia and the United States is that they have a history of uh, of social democratic parties, labor parties, and socialist parties, whereas in the United States, those never actually developed into a mass force that could actually fight for those things. And part of that is actually the early socialist party kind of took a uh, an agnostic approach to race, and they didn't demand that their local branches be like 100% desegregated. And they didn't really place demands on the unions, because early on, a lot of the AFL unions, you know, had restrictions. Basically, they wouldn't allow black people in the union, some of the unions. And they didn't take that up as a, as a struggle to actually build the movement. And I think part of that is actually what led to the failure of the Socialist Party. A lot of that was corrected later by the Communist Party. 
But then the next problem with the Communist Party is they didn't actually try to establish a workers' party. They just kind of saw themselves as kind of the left of a uh, of a broader popular front kind of coalition with the Democrats. And I think uh, an opportunity was lost there. But yeah, in the sense that racism has actually prevented the unity of, of a working class organization to a certain extent. But I think also just the... The fact that the United States, you know, especially after World War One, is the dominant, you know, imperialist power and uh, and to a certain extent has been able to buy social peace, uh, you know, by basically having a layer of the working class that for decades was uh, pretty well off. But, yeah, uh, but that's but see, the other thing, too, is like, of course, like they, they had the smart compromise. They realized that they were like, look, man, this socialism thing is pretty appealing. We better give them a half a loaf. You know, we'll let them have some unions and some pensions and all that stuff. And that was like that was enough to, as you said, pretty much calm people down. Because if you look at it, if I can if I can work one union job, and I think of like my father, right? My father worked at a steel mill. He probably made as much money as I made when he retired, right? Like high school education, you show up, you do your eight hours. If you want, there's always overtime. If you want to work overtime at a mill, you can make better money than like ninety percent of lawyers in America. All you gotta do is be willing to stay out there and suck up the poison. And hope you don't get like burned by something but the money was there right so as long as you were giving people that you could get away with like a lot of other stuff what's to me what's been most crazy and like and we've seen it like it's actually it goes back to the mr jensen thing and network right is that they've realized that they were overdoing it you actually don't have to give people as much as you were giving them and you can still get away with it well i think you also have to factor in the post-war boom and that we kind of landed on top and production was at the forefront at that time which enabled those things to take place right yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, when your competition is literally like, you know, bomb cratered in smoke, <laughs> yeah. it's helpful. And like right now, like all currency feels like smoke, you know, so. I think a lot of that, though, were the Reagan tax cuts. There was an episode of Mad Men where they talked about making more money. And then they said, oh, it doesn't even matter. The government's going to take it anyway. And that's because the top marginal tax rate then was 90%. Anything you made over a certain amount was taxed at 90%, and that ends with Ronald Reagan, and then you get the rise of Gordon Gecko. Right. You know what I mean? And, you know what, and that, that marginal tax rate, they made a difference. I mean, if you look at it, that's, when, like, that's what kept the CEO pay down. And here's the thing. They, like, Reagan has told the lie that he refused to work, but like, people have actually looked at it as he kept working. Because you know what? 10% of a million bucks is still 10% of a million bucks. You can lie all you want, but like, I wouldn't even work. It's like, yes, you would. Like, yeah. the, I, the idea that I'm gonna I'm gonna leave him I'm gonna leave a hundred grand on the table just because like you know Uncle Sam's taking nine. Nah, you know what? I'll still work. But <laughs> it it made it less attractive to pay the CEO you know like forty million dollars if they, you got to give Uncle Sam most of it. Yeah, I'd say a big part of that is actually in network. Uh, a big background to it is the mid '70s uh, oil crisis, which was associated with the mid '70s recession. And I think it's actually a point where capitalism basically reached, you know, reached the the end of the post World War II boom. All that destruction and rebuilding that the U.S. basically bankrolled was over, and uh, so they needed to find a, another means of, uh, you know, basically keeping things going along and maximizing profits. And it came in the form of tax cuts for the rich, you know, deindustrialization, getting people out of union jobs, uh, you know, a tax on people's uh, wages, benefits, all that kind of stuff transition from uh, pensions to 401ks all of it kind of goes with that general kind of take back of big business in that whole period that's what i said it seems like they, what they they came to the realization is that i can keep the people sort of satisfied with a lot smaller hunk of the pie is what they realized because before there was the idea of like we have to stave off communism 
and socialism, we got to offer them a good enough package. It's kind of like, um, you ever see like when like someone tries to unionize a shop and they're like, oh no, we'll do profit sharing and we'll take care of you. You don't need the union. Like, yeah. it, felt, it felt like they were doing that like on a large scale, like the, like the, the industrialists were like, you don't need socialism. We'll take care of you. We'll give you a pension. We'll pay good wages. Don't worry. No socialism. No socialism. Whereas yeah. then, like, it felt like when you get to the 80s, you were like, we actually realized we were overdoing it. We can, we can give you none of the, so- like, now we're not, like, we've made socialism, like, such an anathema that we don't even have to fight it off anymore. We just say socialism and people boo. And we don't even have to be nice to you anymore. Because that's what it feels like happened, right? Like, like, like ah. Think about it. Like, even in this uh, current political, uh, last political race, they would just say socialism and the crowd would boo. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I was going to say that explains the generational divide, too. Like, younger people, you poll, like, most approve of the word. And then it's like, the, it's the inverse when you talk to people, like, over 50. I think fear of socialism is still largely a white and Cuban-American thing. I think that black It's people, definitely huge in Cuba for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, which makes no sense to me for other reasons. But, you know, like, it wasn't like the guy before Fidel was the greatest leader in the history of the world, right? So, it, yeah, you know, like, like... Their problem isn't, like, socialism. Their problem is, like, totalitarian dictatorship, right? Well, right, but there, I mean, you know, there's been a ton of propaganda to merge the two as one thing, and it's to the advantage of these people we're talking about making all these moves. The um, When did um, Chernobyl happen? 86. Yes, there was pretty intense failures happening that could just be, you know, reductively blamed on just use the word communism and let's not get specific and say how it was like, like, you know, Stalinism or things of that nature. And these things get oversimplified on purpose to kind of drown and muddy the waters and oversimplify these very complex matters. Yeah, it was to the benefit of the Stalinists, you know, Stalin himself, Khrushchev, everyone after him, Brezhnev. Uh, and then also Fidel in Cuba, just bringing it back to that, it was to the benefit of them to say what exists here is socialism and communism, <laughs> yeah. and that is direct, <laughs> a direct outgrowth of you know the early Russian Revolution, Lenin, and the uh, you know workers' democracy that was established there. So from their point of view, it was to legitimize their role based on you know what were genuine revolutions uh, that could have led somewhere much better, uh, but. It's also to the benefit of, uh, of the enemies of genuine socialism and enemies of the working class to also say the same thing. Oh, see what's over there? That's, that's a direct outgrowth of the Russian Revolution. Therefore, conclusion, don't ever have a revolution. Don't support socialism. Don't support workers' parties. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it is an amazing, like, it's an amazing job of branding, which... Uh... Can go back to you know how Beal was saying you like the people who believe anything we tell you on the TV, but like the branding is so strong. Where you, like they've made, uh, and the other thing too is like I don't I don't think those of us who exist outside of like the right wing um, sort of echo sphere don't really understand. Like we can't even keep up with it. Like they speak in shorthand. Like they just throw a socialism out and like and the people go ooh bad and like there's they have a bunch of those things. Like they've turned like AOC into like an avatar for like some sort of like Chavez style like you know. Uh, dictatorship and it's like and it's amazing how good the branding works because as you're saying like when people talk about socialism that they always go straight to that i mean but i guess um the real problem with all these things of course is yeah it the results were bad like nobody wants to stand in a bread line or a shoe line you know like i share i used to share an office with a woman who was born in the ussr and she said that her mother would just get in line like, if she saw a line, she'd get in line. She figured whatever they were giving out, she'd take one and she could swap it for what she needed. 
you know, and it's like, that's not attractive, and that's become, like, the American vision of, like, what socialism must be, and that means, like, I'm standing in bread lines, and they're, like, you know, in, in baby shoe lines for the rest of my life, you know, you go to the supermarket, and there's one apple, or, like, one kind of apple, or whatever. Yeah. Well, and in and, and our entire political conversation, and this is, you know, unless someone has another example, I'm pretty sure this is uniquely American, there's that, like, common fallacy that's said in conversation where it's like, you know, there's two kinds of people. You know, the joke is those who say there's two kinds of people and those that don't. But, like, our fucking entire framework of politics in America is there's two types of people, you know, which is why we're as polarized as we are, 24-hour news. I mean, this movie predicted it. But I think that a big fault of liberalism in America is they move and position a very systemic institutionalized issue and shift it to the personal and moral. A really good example is what Chappelle just recently did. When, um, you know, Chappelle, he posted that 20-minute bit of stand-up called Unforgiven on Instagram, which is wonderful if anyone hasn't seen it yet. I'm assuming both of you have. But what he really did was call out ownership and how ownership works and how utilization of one's likeness and perpetuity and what that means and how profits made like he was really challenging big things to quote him he said like you know the me too bitches were mad uh, about how this machine fucks and i'm mad about how this machine how this monster eats and it's the same fucking monster and you know netflix uh, instantly took down Chappelle's show at uh, Dave Chappelle's request. And then just, I don't know, like maybe a week ago, HBO Max finally took it down and they quoted the guy. Um, and they, he said something along the lines of like, you know, we really didn't want to hurt Dave Chappelle. And they shifted it. And in this, I think this is very deliberate. They shifted it to the personal and right. uh, essentially highlighted how this is an exceptional case, not like the others. Yeah. When I really, you know, Dave Chappelle's whole fucking point was like, this whole thing's fucked. You know, me too. <laughs> like, this whole thing, this affects everything. And I hope people realize that because it's a significant pivot. And that pivot happens all the time. And that's like, we can't just shame these white people on an individual basis. What's a quicker way to empathy? I know that black people are the real victims in this circumstance, but it's getting to the point where we're all victims and now we're just biting each other's exposed feet. And I'm on it. I wanted to mention this earlier. Uh, Matt Taibbi, uh, I saw an interview with him. He's talking about some new book. I haven't read it. Uh, I think it's called Hate Inc. And, you know, basically his whole approach is like the cable news is basically they they have created consciously uh instead of the old news was the idea to appeal to the broadest layer of the population uh they've basically found their slice of the pie and are just uh presenting entertainment for their slice of the pie uh so there's no concern about trying to win more viewers you know fox doesn't care about winning over uh more you know liberal viewers they just want to just keep hammering at their own current viewers and uh, and it plays a role of basically segmenting uh, and dividing uh, people and basically different uh, realities in some ways, you know, just because they don't see the same things presented as news. 
uh, they have a completely different understanding of it. There's a really interesting book you should check out. It's called Everybody Lies. It's by a guy named Mark Stevens Davidowitz. He uh, uses like metadata from Google and other large websites to sort of to, to to come to some interesting conclusions. One of the things he found is that people who mostly consume Fox News or like, you know News Corp products, they actually do come into contact with other stuff. They just choose not to like you know to believe it. So mm-hmm. it's like. So it's not that, like, I mean, now, sure, like, when I was saying, like, you know, when, like, within our categories, like, I'm sure that there are, like, look, if you're a QAnon person, you're gone. You're you're <laughs> yes. essentially a religious fanatic. Yeah. Like, I believe that you don't watch anything but Fox News and then, like, Q drops on the internet. Like, Ooh, I don't know if they like Fox News anymore, though. <laughs> that's true. They've gone soft. I think the Jews have gotten to them. Yeah, uh, Newsmax now. But, uh, but if you are, and if anyone didn't get that, that was satirical. but no but um whereas if you're like a generic like fox news viewing person you know you check out the new york times webpage and he's able to see it because you can see what people are like googling and like large trends he can and they break it down by like county level and stuff so it's like people they do it it's just like anything else you just push out the parts you don't like i don't believe that people are ignorant especially with the variety and ease of information you can get you can you can find your way to comfortable information yeah, I think what people do is find the narrative that they want to spew and they they seek to back that out. So if you are if you fundamentally believe for whatever reason that Mexicans are rapist, you're going to go to the channel that supports that and you're going to dismiss any evidence against that. And also, the other thing too is that I don't think we can ever forget the uh, impact of how people were raised on their political beliefs because I say this all the time. Like if I hadn't been raised by like a woman who was like in a union from the time she was a teenager and who would like honk her horn when we drove past picket lines when I was like a four-year-old and who became the building rep at like her school, like when she became a teacher and she graduated from college in her like 40s, I don't think I'd be the same person I am. Like I grew up yeah, in a sure. union area, in a union household, where it's like the things I hold to be like very important are the representation for the working person. And I, and I think also that's why I'm very contemptuous of people who have similar backgrounds but then somehow end up supporting like the, the, uh, the ruling class but they like BS their excuses for it, you know, like, because like, I grew up like literally in a household where when my father got laid off from the mill during like the crazy like deindustrialization of the 80s and stuff, you know, things were tight. We went down to one household economy. Like my father was out like doing odd jobs and stuff to like, you know, keep the lights on. So it's like, I understand what it is to be like an actual blue collar American and never forget that. Cause you could take the kid out of the ghetto, but you can't take the ghetto out of the kid. And so the idea that other people who live that life then turn into complete Republican robots, is just like, it's, I don't understand. Like, I don't know how that works. It it is sad. There's a I intentionally rewatched Blues Brothers, which was at '79 maybe, yeah, early '80s. I rewatched it right when uh, you know Black Lives Matter this second round, and I was like, you know what? It's almost like a different world where there was like this kind of forward thinking, positive view of like white black working class solidarity in like that movie. You know, it's shown in that movie. It's shown in some other movies, even in like Die Hard uh, or. Uh, or Predator, where there is just the characters, white and black, are just equals. And they, they're they work, co-workers. They work alongside each other. I feel like culturally there's been like almost a reversion 
away from that in many ways. And yeah, uh, Mr. Just, Jensen figured it out. Figured out that if we could, yeah, if we can break this up, this would make it easier for us to get away with the stuff. I mean, like yeah. you know, a, a really good example is when uh, Mercedes, usually the Mercedes at BMW, one of the German companies, they were opening a plant in Tennessee, and they were oh, like, yeah. yeah, we're. They're like, we're open to working with the unions. You know, we work with unions in Germany, whatever the case may be. And the governor of Tennessee interceded was like, no, we do not do that in Tennessee. And, yeah, and didn't the vo- workers end up voting to not unionize ultimately? Yeah. Yeah. Because they've been so brainwashed by like the, like the, 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 the whole like making a political party into your religion which is essentially which has been done mostly by television, if you think about it, right? Like, like that you were able to do that. Can you imagine... You couldn't have done that without the way that the, the TV news is gone and the time from when network was made to now. I don't think you could have showed up in Tennessee in 1980 before Fox News existed. Had a company from... First of all, they would have been pissed if the Germans were opening a plant. But anyway, so we'll <laughs> skip that part. They're opening a plant in Tennessee, and when United Auto Workers show up to organize, everybody would be like, well, good. I'm glad the UAW's here. Yeah. Like, you, could, you couldn't have got that to happen if it hadn't been for 40 years of propaganda... Part of it is is the labor leaders too, like that's definitely part of it. But I think the labor leaders not actually presenting a a leading role, like um. And actually, yeah, that's kind of what I was saying with uh, Roger and me, is like, there's also another documentary called American Dream, uh, by Barbara Koppel. Uh, it's all about uh, I think it's the Hormel factory workers in uh, Minnesota, but you know it shows like how the 1930s you know class struggle tactics of like the cio unions the uh industrial unionism which you know basically unionizing on an entire industry-wide basis rather than by particular skills or crafts uh that huge upsurge all those leaders all those people who were radicals who fought for the labor movement like they died (laughs) frankly and then the people who picked up the reins from there were living in the 1950s and 60s where the pie was generally getting bigger and it was easy to fight for higher wages just with the threat of a strike. And then 19, mid-1970s, 80s comes around, there's like this giant onslaught from big business and the labor leaders are basically not up to the task of leading a fight. You know, They always say, oh, well, we can't break the laws. We, can, uh, we can't violate the Taft-Hartley Act. Uh, and, and frankly, I think the labor movement needs those fighters back, people who are willing to break the law to... Uh, to fight and i think how much because... of that do you think is because of like the that the people who led the first one had survived the depression and then like maybe then like the you know gone on to fight in world war ii and then like come back after seeing all that and we're like what you mean to tell me i like you think i won't uh i won't fight a pinkerton versus like people as you yeah. said who sort of grew up as like baby boomers and like a comfortable you know uh in a sort of a comfortable existence never missed a meal versus like yeah. you were born into like the depression like you remember being hungry yeah 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 part of it is is like not recognizing the desperation of the situation and especially today i mean like what is it like 20 or over 20 million people are potentially facing eviction yeah, tens of millions of others are unemployed but okay. you know the image that we're presented to on the news is like oh everything's just fine just uh <laughs> no big deal everything will be better after this it's like no it won't <laughs> and I'll tell you from watching the network news like you'll see it quickly like they'll show the long line of people waiting in for a COVID test they'll show like the long lines at the food bank but then they finish off with like 
you know, some 10 year old who like raised money to like give out food bags and everybody smiles. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> whereas like I look at it and go, if a 10 year old is raising money to give out food bags, we have like, that's a systemic failure. That's not like a feel good story. Like one of the things I guess we haven't really talked about right now with like Trump's presidency is like alongside his racism, alongside his sensationalism. And I think this is it's pretty unique to Trump and reflective of the times in the Internet is how destabilizing he purposefully is. Like it's it seems to me like a new form of uh, it's like confuse and conquer versus divide and conquer. And it kind of goes to like the media literacy of the nation. I came up with this like taxonomy of uh, how information is like received, like just first like the anecdotal experiential, which is like how everyone receives everything. Everyone has a somewhat fair uh, grasp on that. Um, and then there's raw data, which can also be manipulated. And raw data, like an access to it, was kind of a new thing with the internet to the level it is. And um, then there's context and then like discerning between editorial and like objective facts and then the analysis and like, you know, that normally was left often to experts and people just wanted to go about their day, but it's become like a, you know, postmodern day requirement that we're all have to kind of reckon with. So it's, it's weird. Like, and, I, and then the other thing I think that was new to Trump is you're getting a lot of people getting into politics for the first time. So there's like these multi-level tiered conversations happening and it's just it's just difficult to parse. I don't I don't know if it's difficult to parse because sometimes I feel like like for me, I'm going to be reductive, as you would say. I think with Trump, white people said, I'm going to take my ball and go home. I think they saw a black president. I think they saw pluralism. I think they saw what Hillary represented and they didn't care if the whole thing burned down. I think they understood full well who Trump was, what they were getting, the chaos that they were buying into. His campaign was chaotic. Two weeks before the election, he's telling, he's talking about grabbing people by the pussy and raping people. And we all knew that. You're also responding to everything I just said like it was an affront to everything you said. No, it's like this stuff's like, I, is not mutually exclusive. Both of these things can exist at the same time. I don't think that Trump was a surreal experience that created so much confusion that people don't know what's going on. I mean, why do you think there's a surplus of QAnon? He's worse in every facet than I would have predicted. I, here's the thing. I knew he was going to be bad, but I didn't realize he'd be this lazy, this incompetent, this disorganized. Because here's what I thought. I thought he was going to be like another George Bush, a George W. Bush. Like he'll hire a bunch of people who know what the hell they're doing, and then he'll just sort of like come out and like shake hands and wave at babies and shit. But instead, he actually likes to meddle. And you're like, wait a minute, you can't be both incompetent, ignorant, and involved, you know? Like, like at least have enough sense to, <laughs> to stay out of the way, you know? But that's the thing. He has no sense. The thing about Trump you always have to remember is he only won because Roger or Rupert Murdoch and Fox News and the Republicans and Reaganism had been building up the team for 40 years to the point where any idiot could coach him to the victory. Like, honestly, they could take mm. any one of us, put us on the ticket, and we would get most of Trump's votes. Absolutely. I mean, that's how wild it is. Like, if we somehow won the Republican nomination, people would be like, you know, I'm not wild about the black guy, but, you know, he is a lawyer. Seems pretty smart. <laughs> and, and besides, we don't want a Democrat in there. And they would vote for me. Like, people would vote for me and they'd say, you know, you know what, Gary, we heard that you used to be a flaming liberal. And i go, you know what, I was converted. I was struck off my ass on the road to Damascus, not unlike, the, uh, not unlike Saul in the good book. 
And I've I, come to see the light, and I now love capitalism. And, you know, He gained 69 or 68 million votes, the second most amount of votes in American history after, obviously, the winner, Joe Biden. I don't he, think Tom Cotton gets 68 million votes. If you look at the Republican vote shares, right, Trump got basically the same amount of Republican votes that any other Republican gets. Like, the same people, like, he got the same share of votes as voted for Romney. The difference is more people went out and voted, partly because there's more people, and also partly because they were told over and over, this is a turnout election, this is a turnout election, you got to get out, the Democrats are pissed off, and they're going to come and try and, like, take over. Because think about it, right? Biden got more votes than anyone else. That's not a reflection of Biden's personal like popularity. That's a reflection of the desperation to win this election. You have to the Republicans yeah. felt just as desperate to win. So all the people who are like hardcore Republicans got out to vote for their guy. Plus, there's also the Trump has some of the nut vote. Like there is like he gets a little <laughs> bit of the nut vote that like another guy wouldn't have gotten. It's true. Like if Tom Cotton were running, some of the Q nuts would have stayed home. They'd be like, you know what? If you vote, then the Jews will just have your name and then they'll come to your house. So, <laughs> like, yeah, some of them would have stayed home and came out special for Trump. That is true. I agree. But think about it. Did anybody like Romney? No. Romney got a huge number of votes because that's how, like, people now vote for their party and like, they're voting for the R next to him. That's what I'm telling you. Right now, if we put it up there, if we said Boston is coming, like, he somehow won the nomination, squeaked out a two-point lead, Marco Rubio would come out and say, I'm voting Boston 2026 because he's the best man for the job. And anybody's better than, you know, Kamala, Kamalama Ding Dong. And you know what? You get 60 plus million votes because it's like, hey, man, he's got the nomination. R's next to his name. But you, let me ask you this, though, in the reverse. Do you think that had Obama been as bad as Trump, Democrats would have reelected him? And you know what? No, because there is actually like this is why I don't do the both sides thing, because there is actually like a marginal difference. But the margins are where so much happens. Right. If you think about it, you say there's a marginal difference between how good a basketball player LeBron James is and, and the guy who's like a college all star. Right. So like a guy who goes to Duke is a five star recruit. There's a marginal difference in how good they are at basketball. But that margin is all the difference. One guy's a Hall of Famer. The other guy's like, you know, coaching high school basketball in some place. You know, so the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats is they would have removed Obama if he was that bad. Like he would have, when the impeachment came, they'd probably been like, yeah, he's got to go. Because the Democratic Party is still based on this idea that voting and democracy still matters. You know, whereas the Republican Party <laughs> has sort of consolidated itself into like power is what matters. As long as we keep winning elections, we don't care what we have to do to do that. It is arguable that... If anything, the primaries, the fact that Trump won and Bernie Sanders did not in 2016, that the Republicans are actually more Democratic in the fact that some rogue dude who, frankly, the Republican establishment didn't want was able to actually win the primary. Whereas on the other side, the Democrats, you know, through their manipulation of the media, in a sense, also handed the presidency to Trump because they directly asked basically their buddies in the media to amplify him as the easier to beat candidate. Uh, whoops. But yeah, their you know, their work with the media to uh, kind of poo poo the idea of a Bernie Sanders presidency or even a candidacy, I should say. Yeah, uh, that's scheme that's scheming, but that's not the same as removing voting machines and like closing oh, yeah, yeah, down sense, like yeah. you know like and like or in Florida was like probably the most flagrant example, right? The people literally voted at the polls that we should let former felons vote. And they were like, nah, we're not going to do that. One thing I always like to say is the party that actually this might be the only 2020 might be the last example uh, that is not true. 
But, uh, you know, in most elections, it's uh, it's the none of the above party that wins. It's the people who don't come out and vote at all. But, yeah, like the, the whole I, I also often say that there's two reasons that the Republicans, the only two reasons the Republicans win are because the Democrats have basically lost any support for good reason in many cases. But the other part is, you know, voter suppression because <laughs> they like yeah, literally don't have a big enough base in society to actually win elections. Well, all right, gentlemen, I really appreciated the conversation um, and it is time for us to close it out. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Again, drop us a line at bostonnj at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. And if you feel so inclined to subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. All right, folks, from your badass commie cracker, stay curious. Love you, Tayo. Oh